Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. We've all had those moments in our lives when everything feels a little bit darker, colder, a bit less hopeful. Those emotional winters were perfectly encapsulated by today's guest, Catherine May, in her transatlantic bestseller, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. Her new book is another soothing antidote for the way we live now, Enchantment, Reawakening Wonder in an Exhausted Age. And I don't know about you, but I am exhausted. I don't know if it's the aftermath of the pandemic, our always-on culture, just life. But this spoke to me in exactly the way Wintering did. It's much easier to say this is a hormonal disruption and it will pass and we can medicate it effectively than it is to say this is a massive hormonal disruption and it lands at a time when we are under mm. unbearable and unsustainable pressure. And the two of those acting together is an absolute nightmare. Catherine joined me from her home by her beloved seaside to talk about her midlife autism diagnosis, why she believes we're living through the burnout decade and how to wrest back control of our lives from our work. She told me about entering perimenopause at 29, but still being absolutely livid in her mid-40s, how she's fully over white male gurus, and why she wants to open up the conversation about meaning. How was your retreat? Oh, it was lovely. It was really nice. Yeah, it was really good. I'm really glad I did it. But I could have done without having had the flu directly beforehand. Oh, God, yeah. And proper flu, not what everybody calls the flu. And then the week before that, I'd had COVID. So I just rolled from one thing to another. The somatic illness. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that really take you out. That's the thing. I mean, it's profoundly linked, isn't it? And it's linked to our sense of like exhaustion and the way that we're worn down by our lives at the moment. And that must leave us vulnerable to illness. It can't not. Otherwise, our bodies don't really make any sense, I don't think. If, If you can just carry on piling into life and then like not get sick, that would be the solution to everything, I think. (laughs) <laughs> but it's not it's just not how we work so is that where enchantment came from 
do you think? I reread Wintering at Christmas just because I think it's going to become one of my, you know, seasonal comfort reads, which I think there is no higher compliment, really. (laughs) That's a huge compliment, yeah. Then I read Enchantment very recently, and it does feel like a logical next step. So where did it come from? Did it come from lockdown? Did it come from your own health? Did it come out of wintering? What was the kind of Mm. process? It was really hard birth, actually, this one. Like, Wintering was a book that kind of downloaded itself into my head in one go. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> made sense immediately, you know. Whereas Enchantment, I felt like I had to really work to get there. I knew I was circling just like what life feels like now. This very particular quality that our lives have post-pandemic, but also like post that much bigger swathe of history that we've all lived through where we're so disoriented by you know it's like we've emerged blinking into this new world and we can't make sense of it or or get a foothold in it so I knew like I wanted to write in that space but it took me the longest time to know what I I wanted to say in that space I knew I wanted to be thinking about these kind of bigger values like awe humility and that sense of feeling small in a grand universe because that's the negative side of what we feel as and I feel like it could be the positive side of what we feel as well but I literally had to just keep going in and making attempts at it until it slotted together it was it was a real repetitive labor this one it was like a a book that I just had to keep going back and chipping away and thinking, what do I think in this crazy, wild space that we find ourselves in? So yeah, very, very different. There was a point kind of two thirds through the process when I just had this revelation that it was about burnout Mm. um, and that burnout was like the driving factor behind everything I wanted to talk about. And burnout was why it was so hard to write, you know, and, and that, that burnout was coming from from a really profound place that was more than just the last couple of years, you know, this real sense of feeling like home had been taken away from us and that all of the certainties had gone and how exhausting it is to, to be wandering that landscape. There feels to me anyway that there's a sense that burnout, you know, the phrase burnout is somehow the property of a slightly younger demographic, if you like, if it's like, like millennials own burnout. I mean, obviously, that's not true. (laughs) Like we were being burnt out long before they were being. Yeah, we were burnt out first, guys, (laughs) back off. (laughs) And I'm sure that, you know, my mum's generation, anybody listening is going, hang on, no, we were burnt out first. (laughs) But it's like, I suppose it's the talking about it isn't it? The kind of putting a name on it. I suppose we used to, in fact, even when I wrote The Shift, I would have called it a breakdown. And that had such negative connotations. It was like a personal failure, or it felt that way. It was like breaking under the pressure. And if you were good enough and strong enough and tough enough, then you wouldn't. Whereas Mm -hmm. burnout doesn't somehow feel the same. No, it's kinder, isn't it? It's funny because my first novel that I published was called Burning Out. Oh, Um, I didn't know you'd published novels. Yeah, like a long, long time ago. And I was thinking about it even then, I suppose. But my sort of deeper understanding of burnout came from uh, learning I was autistic and the autistic community talk about burnout a lot because it's a, it's Mm -hmm. a really live issue for us. 
And that helped me to see patterns of burnout across my life. Like it's it's just something that's unavoidable if you're trying to fit in with a society that isn't really made for you. But I think what I've really noticed is how that spread to the much broader community and that it's not a rare event for anyone anymore that it's actually this almost constant experience it's how we experience life is in, in this really burnout way and like we've got so far to go to unravel all the threads that have produced that we're living in this environment that's hostile to our basic good mm. health mental and physical and it's going to be hugely complex to unravel that and I'm, I'm not even seeing the will to unravel that yet it's enormous and I think it's going to be it's going to carry on being enormous for a, a decade to come I think this is the burnout decade there isn't a will is there because I sorry did, no no I, I agree unfortunately I because I did kind of hope during lockdown that when we emerged that we would keep some of the unlearnings if you like as you phrase it in the book that some of the things that we we could take some good things from lockdown but it seems to me that we aren't that there's a race back to let's go back to how it was and some of the things that have carried on are just gradually being eroded why do you think we're kind of clinging to the bad is it just because we know is it like better the devil you know yeah i mean i i do think that a conversation has continued about it which maybe wasn't there before you mm. know particularly i mean the fight centered on homeworking really hasn't it but, yeah and that's and slacking a, you know that's a way of yeah and quiet quitting yeah um <laughs> which i like yeah like quiet quitting sounds like the way i've always worked that wouldn't that have been working to rule would have been wouldn't it i suppose yeah but like outside of the US and UK, it would just be working, you yeah, know, doing yeah. your hours, yeah. God forbid, taking a lunch break. Um, it's telling, isn't it? But yeah, like I think the problem is that we need a much more radical conversation about boring things like the structure of society, actually, before we can really tackle it. Because otherwise it's untackleable. Like we've got to stop saying that we can do this by like, like little life hacks or by you know managing our diaries better or being better motivated it's mythological like we are we've got ourselves into a situation where work is intruding into every aspect of our lives where we are never allowed to switch off where like our, our level of responsibility to be conscious about everything all the time has become just bigger than our brains are capable of holding and we're like at the same time we're profoundly disconnected from all of the solaces that might help us in that and we don't feel like we've got time to do anything about it you know it is a conversation about capitalism ultimately really and and the way that it's set up and the the way that we are complicit in that system and that we only know how to derive our self-esteem from the system that there is now and we you know we really struggle to imagine it i mean that's that's why your conversation about aging is so important because actually one of the things we've been denied particularly as women is to be allowed to derive any self-esteem from an aging body yeah. <laughs> like, yeah that is forbidden to us it's not it's not legitimate because pretty is what's demanded of us and pert and firm yeah which, uh... <laughs> and pretty is synonymous with under 30 even not even under 40 isn't it totally. yeah it's totally. oh there are changes that happen to your face after that that just are not pretty in that sense that we've been fed all our lives it's like a big confrontation for all of us that we have to make and it's painful I guess it's so ingrained and so internalized that 
you can just move from one part of your body to another, can't you? So it's like, I mean, I think when I was young, I started off by thinking I hated my thighs. And then you find a different bit of your body that you hate more. As you get older, it's like, like maybe your stomach or like your upper arms. And my new thing is my jowls. It's like, where, <laughs> where did that come from? Where does all this come from? Because, you know, I think I'm quite evolved. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not. But (laughs) even though you kind of say, I remember reading the norepinephrine, I feel bad about my neck and going, I refuse to feel bad about my neck. Cough. I'm not going to feel bad about my neck. But I do feel bad about my chin. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe the neck just hasn't really set in yet. (laughs) It's about, well, I don't know. (laughs) Where do you feel that being in your own midlife plays in? to what you're writing plays into enchantment and your I don't want to kind of I mean I had scribbled <laughs> spiritual journey but um I don't really want to dub it that because it's it's so much more and less and different than that you know it's your I don't know search to reconnect with stuff <laughs> yeah I mean I've thought about this a lot recently because you know we're talking about menopause a lot in our society at the moment one of the things I've noticed about that conversation is that anything that is said that is a kind of discomfort or complaint now the answer becomes oh it must be menopause Mm. and I've got a little bit of a problem with that honestly because I think that we're talking about structural issues and those structural issues impact our experience of menopause that's not to deny the kind of massive biological revolution that our bodies go through and how difficult that is but they're heightened by how women are living at this stage in their life. And every middle-aged woman I know is carrying such a kind of complex burden of care, work, like general responsibility to hold every single thing in your mind and to be in control of it. They're making sure their neighbours are okay. They're, they're checking in on relatives. They are holding down kind of hugely valued and responsible working roles. They may or may not be parenting at different stages mm. in that cycle. And they're also dealing with a responsibility to stay pretty somehow mm. and thin and like in a way that their husbands do not have to hold, you know, I'm assuming they're married, like their male partners or their male counterparts, their male colleagues. And I just think that we need to start talking about menopause as part of a bigger structural pattern because my body started going through perimenopause when I was 29. And I can tell you for sure that the anger still landed in my mid 40s. The rage, um, you know, like the biological disruption was the same, but it was the structural differences that brought the rage ultimately. And I, you know, it's almost like we found this new easy thing to blame our difficulties on, which means that we don't have to take that much, much deeper look into how we're running things. It's much easier to say this is a hormonal disruption and it will pass and we can medicate it effectively than it is to say this is a massive hormonal disruption and it lands at a time when we are under Mm. unbearable and unsustainable pressure. And the two of those acting together is an absolute nightmare it's so interesting you say that I mean I had scribbled (laughs) down some notes when I was reading enchantment about the symptoms 
that you describe coming out of lockdown mm. and I'm not going to be able to find them now. I'm always writing notes and then writing so many notes that I can never find the ones I actually want. But that kind of that combination of like you lost your ability to read particularly fiction, mm. you're mm. Um, mm. feeling that you've run out of charge or and I, I kind of feel like yeah. I'm constantly charged. I'm like an iPhone that's constantly charged to 20%, just charged <laughs> enough yeah, to yeah. get out of the door yeah. every day. The brain fog, mm. you know, they're the symptoms of burnout. They're the psychological mm-hmm. symptoms many perimenopausal women cite. They're the symptoms of coming out of lockdown, the bone deep tiredness. They are symptomatic of lots of things that people mm. are experiencing right now. If you're neurodivergent, they're probably pretty much consistent throughout your life as well. Those are you know, symptoms that I've had since being a teenager pretty regularly. You tell me if this is problematic. Do you think... Being neurodivergent and you have those symptoms, that constant cycle of burnout, trying to fit into a world that isn't built for you. Do you think that there's an element of that that women entering middle age start to experience? The world is no longer built for them, if it ever was, but you know I what I mean. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about this last year and the reason that, that they start to experience that stuff is that it is about the world being hostile to your neurology, basically. Mm. So if what is being demanded of you on a day-to-day basis is greater than your brain's processing power, and, you know, that that might not even be changing that much, but actually the demand might go up or the neurology might change and the demand stays the same, like whatever that is. And if you are constantly in an act of like very conscious labour in order to fit into that world, then you're going to experience this this brain crash, brain fog we talk about, or burnout. Like they're they're all the same thing. And yeah, so if you're neurodivergent, you're going to experience that a lot earlier in life because that fit becomes more difficult much sooner than later. I think we're talking about a common experience, without a doubt. It has the same effect, and it is every bit as painful. You know, <laughs> whatever stage in your life you're going through it. I mean, one thing I would say is that there's kind of increasing anecdotal evidence for neurodivergent women that menopause is particularly problematic, that those changes accelerate, you know, Mm -hmm. the the stuff that they've been feeling all along. But I, you know, I, I do think that we can talk about this as a commonality. It's not coming from the same source, but it, it leads to the same issues. One of the things that that reveals is the stuff that we think is so different about neurodiversity is actually, we're just looking at the responses. You know, when we talk about people being in meltdown, when we talk about people shutting down, we see those responses in neurotypical people under extreme stress. The difference is that most of the time neurotypical people aren't under that extreme stress Mm. that neurodivergent people experience. But actually, when you level that horrible playing field, Mm. (laughs) you see the same responses from people and it feels often a lot of time like extreme confusion and being very very muddled and and very kind of unable to to think straight were you 40 when you received your autism diagnosis 39 yeah. 39 yeah. how did that yeah. how did that come about I know you've written about it but tell us a little bit um, about yeah yeah I wrote about it in my memoir uh, called the electricity of every living thing and and really it was quite random I got to the point where I realised that I needed to make a change, that life felt incredibly difficult for me after I had my son. You know, I carried this sense with me throughout my life that I was different to everybody else. And that was unshakable. That wasn't like a, like, oh, I feel a bit 
weird sometimes mm. in a room that was like, no, I, I'm a different species of human. That's how I felt when I was a child and it's how I carried on feeling. And so I decided that I needed to undertake a long walk. So I started walking the Southwest mm-hmm. Coast path. And the reason I'm sort of telling the story about that is because if I hadn't have gone out and walked, I don't think I'd have come to the realisation that I was autistic. I think it opened up this reflective space. And, and as I walked, my brain was putting things together, like it kept throwing up events in my life or responses that I'd made or feelings that I'd had. First of all, I thought, God, my brain is just being really cruel to me. Like it's dredging up every dark moment Mm -hmm. of my life while I'm walking. But I feel like a reordering, like a restoring was taking place. And then I was driving in my car one day and I heard a woman talk about what it was like to be autistic. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that story told from the inside, like experientially rather than from the outside. You know, like part of my degree was in psychology. I've worked in education like most of my career. I've worked with autistic kids, <laughs> but I'd only like every bit of training or education I'd ever had on autism was always about how autism looks rather than how autism feels. And those two things do not go together. Mm. Like there is a profound mismatch in the way that we talk about autism and how autism feels if you are autistic. And the minute that I heard someone talk about what it felt like to be autistic, I was like, oh, that's it, that's me. But the the walk was necessary to like crack me open, I think. You know, it connects really strongly to enchantment as well, which is mm-hmm. all about immersing yourself in landscape and how having that almost like bodily conversation with the ground beneath your feet mm-hmm. and the air around you is transformative mentally and emotionally it takes us into these different mindsets and it makes change possible I think. One of the things one of the many things that really interested me was the sense that that enchantment is something we have the capacity for as children that's putting my interpretation on it Mm, I feel like we lose but I wonder whether we lose it in the kind of I'm so busy and important and indispensable and all of those things that go together to make up the overload that we've been talking about the kind of I'm going to have it all you know the kind of our generation of like have it allness and I wonder whether whether there's something about this time of life that makes reopening up to it possible in a way that maybe it isn't possible in that 20 30 years in between I don't know I I don't know what I'm saying I I really think so actually no no I I think you're saying something very clear and very coherent actually and, and actually very important because this phase of my life is definitely my favourite phase of life so far. I feel much more certain of myself and my needs and much less shame, you know, Mm. about wanting and needing. Yeah, I mean, you you sort of got embarrassed when you said uh, it's quite a spiritual journey. Screw it. Let's talk about, you know, wanting and needing as a spiritual dimension to my life, which I would have found an excruciatingly embarrassing idea in my 20s and Mm. probably most of my 30s. And I would have run a mile to have rejected it. And there's something about getting a little bit older that you just think, I don't really care about looking cool in front of Richard Dawkins anymore. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He doesn't care what I think anyway realized that that kind of quest to be cool for want of a better Mm. word that you have when you're younger that sense of like keeping up with the world and being socially appropriate begins to fade a little or certainly has for me I've let go of some of the balloons and beneath that effort to fit in 
are these like desires and one of the big desires for me was definitely a more fluid relationship with the landscape and my human experience of putting my feet on the ground and sensing everything that's going on around me and immersing myself in the grandeur of that and the timelessness of that and how minute I am in all sorts of different scales like physical scales time scales you mm-hmm. know <laughs> human scales geological scales And there's a conversation that I wanted to be having with all of that stuff that becomes scenery if we're not careful and a dialogue and a call and response. And I think part of that is my increasing sense of stewardship of that world as I get older, like my Mm. responsibility to it and how much it needs us to not take care of it in a sort of paternalistic way, but actually to tune into its needs which we've not been doing. I couldn't have got there when I was younger. No. I would have been too sensible. (laughs) (laughs) And like you say, too caught up in how things looked from outside. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Looking back now, I mean, I lived in London for years and worked in London for years and I never once looked up, you know, I was resolutely urban, Mm. I didn't want to be in the country, I didn't care about the country, I didn't, you know, it was just a place (laughs) you went through to get where you were going and Mm. it's been a complete shock to me. 
You know, I love living somewhere where from the end of the street, you can see the sea in one direction and a mountain from the other. And I am still in a city, but it's a very unique sort of city. I'm biased, obviously. But that kind of sense that it's all bigger than you has suddenly become important. And it, it really kind of ties into you talking in enchantment about meaning making. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, again, it's almost feels like, it, oh, is it a bit of a cliche that like, OK, now I'm 50 plus, you know, <laughs> I'm starting to worry about the footprint that I leave behind and, and to want something bigger to believe in. But at the same time, we don't have that anymore because, you know, it's not can't just blame the Internet for everything. But, you know, nope. scrolling has been it's been my God for a long time. It's a lot of people's gods. <laughs> the god of scrolling i know how depressing is that <laughs> well yeah i mean i i'm just the same though and i could list a million ways that i have avoided making that kind of reckoning with not just like with mortality although i do think that's an important part of it actually but with that sense of continuity of life and the parts of my experience that pull on me that take me beyond what i can rationalize and what i can describe scientifically or that I could show someone else and demonstrate I'm having that experience I've come to realize that those it doesn't matter to do that and that I'm pulled towards this feeling of flow and fluidity and connection I guess with other people that seems incredibly present to me but which I can't make any sense of whatsoever I mean I wasn't brought up a Christian but I attended Christian schools and I I never felt comfortable in that tradition and I I now understand why because the rules were always so external and they were given to me mm. you know and, and they were sort of stated that it's certainly in the way that I learned it and I know different traditions do this very differently but it never made any sense to me to take on someone else's spiritual rules. Like I always needed my own. Mm. <laughs> I, needed, I needed to base it on my own experience and my own perception. And I am quite resistant to anything that over explains that. <laughs> you know, I'm mm. much more of a Taoist than I am a Christian because I don't think we do understand. But I think we're all talking about the same sense of, of luminosity that we can feel sometimes. And I think we can understand that in very individual ways and still be in conversation with each other about it because we're actually all talking about the same kind of source. It's hard to talk about it even now. It's a bit embarrassing, you know? It's mm. like... <laughs> You know, I know for sure that my husband will roll his eyes if he listens to this interview and he's like, oh, God, this is just, oh, stop, you know, because... <laughs> Has he read your he books? He doesn't feel the same calling. He, <laughs> he, uh, he only reads them once they're published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense to him, but it does make sense to me. And I could carry on denying it or I could, you know, live mm. the fullness of the life that's being offered. Does he relate to the nature bit of it? And just doesn't take that the, to the next degree. Yeah, to an extent. And I think he'd say he finds it in different ways. Like he finds it in music. Mm. That's the that's yeah. the place that he goes to to enter into that flow and to, to feel transcendence. We're talking about the same thing in lots of ways, but talking different languages. And equally, often, you know, I will have conversations with other people about it that I find like I can't get a foothold in almost like there's a language mm. that gets thrown at you that you think I don't understand this language you know you're throwing out all these terms at me that make no sense to me whatsoever and don't feel universal but that's the language you've learned to talk about 
a common experience. And I, yeah, I wanted to make an invitation, I suppose, for people like me who are a bit embarrassed by the whole thing and who didn't grow up having a conversation like that. And also who maybe don't have family and friends now who are ever having that conversation Mm. to dig into our own instincts and our own gut feelings and to build an experience from the ground up based on what they perceive rather than what they're handed down from other people. I'm definitely not founding my own cult yet. Yeah. Well, there obviously are a lot of people who feel the way you feel, though, because wintering would never have taken off in the way it has if there weren't people. And that was pre-pandemic. Was that pre-pandemic? I've lost track. Yeah, in the UK, it came out about three weeks before. Oh, great. Great timing. Great timing. It actually was perfect timing, but not great timing for publication. So go go back to your poor husband for a moment. It's uh, sorry, H. Sorry. Um, There's a bit that really made me laugh where you talked about spiritual development being designed for men. And I wonder if there's something in that too, as well, that, you know, somehow men are allowed to go and sit up in a hut up halfway up a mountain for six months and someone else will get the kids to school and keep everything going. And I'm wondering again, I mean, I'm not trying to make everything about midlife or middle age or whatever you want to call it but I just wonder whether there's something in that that the kind of you know society as you say society prizes masculine knowledge and men historically have got to do the things that are big and important and women haven't and whether there's something about reaching this point in your life you go hang on I want a bit of that if that is a thing that you want yeah no well so I tell the story in enchantment of when I learned to meditate and the guy that taught us who was great but he made this big thing of like you know he learned to be a meditation teacher because he went off and meditated in a cave in a mountain in India. For my eyes have rolled into the back of my head. It's like... <laughs> I know, I know. But I, you know, like at the time, I remember being sort of frightfully intimidated by that and thinking, oh, he must know more than I do about it. And there was one brilliantly bolshy older woman in the group who put her hand up and said, where are your kids at this point? And he was like, oh, my wife was looking after them. Of course, of course. <laughs> but Actually, I think we need to ask that question over and over again whenever we're presented with the... Because we are still being presented with these white male gurus who tell us the answer and give us these spiritual systems that we are destined to fail at. Like, I can't meditate for 30 minutes twice a day. No matter how much rearranging I do of my life, there is not space for that. And there certainly wasn't space for it when I had a young child. You know, that space is maybe beginning to open up for me again. But that's not a failure. That's me practicing life in a different way. And I make the point in enchantment that I think we should learn to ask these men how they would respond if they had their sleep constantly disrupted and if they had to constantly give gentle, kind care, even when they were desperate to return to their own work and their own thinking. And and the wisdom that gets built from being disrupted all the time rather than from being able to do the thing that many of us want to do which is surrender to our thoughts like the luxury of that is indescribable and you know the financial privilege that's often behind this as well I could go on there are different routes into a spiritual relationship with the world and it's our job to start asking the question, how were you able to drop all those ties to do that? 
because many of us can't and that's not because we've failed and that's not because we're doing anything that's vaguely unusual actually we are knitting the fabric of society together through care and that's a very very important and wise thing to do I mean when you were walking the south coast path like every weekend and you had a small mm. child did you feel like you somehow shouldn't be doing that Oh God, all the time. Yeah, I had a three-year-old. I went back once a month and walked a whole weekend. And sometimes my husband and son came with me and sometimes I went off on my own. And for me, it was really important to put that in the book, to externalise it and to like manifest the work that it takes when one parent goes off to pursue their like life goals. I always made sure that it was really clear who was doing the care and how that was being arranged. Because we read such a lot of books where men go off and undertake amazing adventures, mm. you know, and they've left their wife at home. And it's never once mentioned, except maybe it's like in the acknowledgements, like what a rock she is. <laughs> um, and whoa, like, did she have any choice about being a rock? You know? <laughs> it was hard. And I felt guilty about it a lot of the time. But I, I also felt very driven towards it. And like, in lots of ways, I wanted my son to experience me doing that to like, know that there are these things that are very important to us at times and I hope it will give him permission to do that in, in the future but also he saw his father looking after him while I did it mm. and I hope that will mean that he's willing to do that for a partner in the future yeah. too. <laughs> I mean let us remind ourselves that the same number of men and women have children yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh aye, aye, aye. how long have you got um, before I go to the questions that I always ask at the end, I want to talk um, a little bit about swimming because I know open water swimming is really important to you. But it really interested me that despite having swum most of your life, you took swimming lessons in your 40s, didn't you? Yeah, I'd always swum, but I'd never been to a lesson. That was fine. You know, like I had a decent breaststroke. But I got to a point, particularly seeing as I swim in the sea regularly, when actually my confidence was dropping. I saw other people taking more risks and I felt less and less certain that I could kick myself. Like I had that like extra kick in my stroke to get myself out of trouble um, because trouble does come when you're swimming. You know, you do get taken by little riptides sometimes or by currents. And I found myself feeling more and more worried about it. And I decided that what I really needed was front crawl, mm. which just seems to be the stroke that has got that power in it. And so, yeah, I went back to adult swimming lessons, which you, you may or may not be surprised to know are always full. Like there are many, many people learning for many reasons. And some of the people in my group had never swum, but a lot of them were like me that were self-taught and had like very inefficient strokes. Mm. And it was an extraordinary process and it got cut off by the pandemic starting but to relearn something that your body is very sure it knows how to do is so hard <laughs> like you have to unlearn everything before you can relearn it after a couple of weeks I felt like I couldn't swim at all like everything had been completely unraveled the new stroke wasn't there the old stroke had gone and I was just startled <laughs> you know, I, was, I just thought it's never going to happen again and then one day the rhythm hit like it just landed and suddenly I could swim in a completely different way 
I'm honestly really glad I did it. Like I, I would actually like to get back in a pool and work on it a little more now because then I was disrupted by the pandemic and I had COVID very early on. And I have Meniere's disease, which is like a balanced mm. condition. And COVID made my Meniere's a lot, lot worse. Um, I spent a lot of 2020 and 21 very dizzy, essentially. And that held me back from swimming, obviously. Mm. <laughs> it's the last thing you want to do is like, get in water and bob about when you're already dizzy. But yeah, I would, I'd now like to go back and, and polish that stroke further because it was an enormous pleasure to know my body could relearn something like that you think you can only do it when you're a kid but just like enchantment apparently you can do it in your (laughs) (laughs) is that notion of having to unlearn isn't it that kind of in a way easier to learn when you've got no preconceptions than it is when you've already decided Mm. how things Mm. are absolutely i did it the same in my 20s i'd learned to play badminton just you know hitting the shuttlecock back Mm, and forward and started taking lessons and I couldn't believe how different it was like this is not how we serve what are you talking about why would I stand here What's going on? Mm. but it's such an interesting actually and I decided I preferred my own way of doing it and gave up the lessons and assistance. <laughs> yeah. but um you know I don't he was trying to train us to do the thing where the woman stands at the front and pops up just to hit the odd ball over <sighs> the head and the man set. and I was like I am I'm gonna stand at the back and hit hit it really hard thanks it's just more fun <laughs> But yeah, you learn a new thing. You often have to unravel an old thing. And I think we forget that part of the process, but it's important. Yeah, definitely. It's really fascinating. I was just really interested by the kind of dual importance to you of swimming and walking through, in fact, Mm. swimming and walking throughout Enchantment. I mean, walking is present in the other two as well. Yeah. I mean, both of them are things I've always done, but they've grown in importance as I've got older. Like I've always soothed myself by getting into water. I've always wanted to swim in the sea, but I didn't always live by the sea. I have always got myself in a hot bath when the world jangled me too much. And I think basically because I hate driving, like I've always walked everywhere if I can. I've always chosen places to live that are walking distance of where I want to go. Like it's always just been an important value to me that I want to get there on my own two feet. But the need to walk much further and to be alone for long periods of time or the need to swim in a way that's less spontaneous and that's a more regular presence in my life and to get into water regardless of the conditions. Mm. That's something that's come as I've got older and I've been able to assert that, that need and also to like explore it, like to want to push it to its limits and to find how far I can walk before I get stopped or how long I want to stay in the water or how often. I think I've become more curious as I've approached middle age and just more wanted to find my own way to do it. And at the same time, I really despise some of the culture that has arisen around cold water swimming or outdoor swimming that's instantly become about measuring, Mm. you know, like how many minutes you stay in, at what temperature, how far you swim, what race you... It makes my little heart sink because we are so unable to just be. Like swimming and walking for me are, are about being and immersing myself in being and we can't do it we just add numbers to everything and then wonder why it's unpleasant yeah (laughs) and also and connect it to thinness every downtime you know number of times people have said to me 
oh, being in cold water will make you burn fat. Or, you know, if you swam a mile a day, you'd be burning so many calories. Like, I don't give a flying toss about that. And I hope I never do, because that would rob me of the amazing experience that I get from it. And yes, I'm sure walking up a hill for a long while does burn fat, but that is absolutely not why I'm into that at all. Screw it. I'm so bored of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask. What's your emotional age? 45. I'm really happy right here. I mean, if anything, I'm older, like I'm, you know, 67 or so, I think, in my soul. And always have been, actually. (laughs) Um, Give us a book recommendation. It can literally be anything. It can be something that's always been significant to you. It can be something you just read that you loved. Anything at all. How about um, Jenny Diskey's Skating to Antarctica, which is just the memoir that made me want to write memoir. But I, I, you know, she's such an incredible, astute writer and she's got such... Oh, sorry, she died a few years mm. ago. I mean, I, her work has got such mm. a kind of critical, wry, earthy voice. But she also always says something profound. And I, I just think she's one of our most underrated writers. I hope she'll be like vastly rediscovered in the next few years. You could start working on that now. Yeah, all right. I'm really happy to be the Jenny Diskey stand. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give younger women? to not care as early as you can you know I think most of all about romance really for younger women you know this this hunt for love and how much people change themselves in the pursuit of that and I just want to tell people really that you don't want to find the person that loves you because of all the work you've done that can't possibly be kept up like find someone who loves you in comfortable shoes and who will look after you when you're sick because that's what love actually is in the long term it's got nothing to do with big romantic gestures or going out looking amazing because you spent three hours in the bathroom I just wish people would understand that (laughs) I love that find someone who love you in comfortable shoes very good bit of advice if they don't love you in Birkenstocks they are not worth it (laughs) Crocs might be pushing it, but <laughs> Crocs is a negotiation you can have between you. <laughs> Who is your old bird role model? I have to let you into a secret. I am such a bullshit person that I'm really bad at having role models. Like I'm, I am 100% resistant to it because I think it's part of this kind of culture where we're urged to model ourselves on other people or do things Mm. that please other people and like I've never had role models I think that's probably like a really bad instinct in me but I just don't do it I don't attach to people like that fair enough I'm my own role model yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I you know like I much prefer making it up from from scratch that's definitely my approach what's your superpower so many Um, (laughs) (laughs) mixing cocktails is my weird superpower that people don't expect of me Mm. Uh, i love the fact that you're playing with pure flavors and that you can have a little think about it mix a few things together and create a new thing it's like i do it nearly every night for my 
Blue Hour. And uh, yeah, people who know me know me for it. Wow. I would not have guessed that. That's interesting. I know. I mix a killer martini. As an aside, do you also like taking things apart? <laughs> no, not not in a mechanical way because I'm very clumsy. And mm. so I associate that with pure disaster. But I, as a cook, like I love cooking and I hate following recipes. It's very similar to the role model thing. Mm. But I like to be thinking about the individual elements and how they go together and put them together myself. Yeah, everything has to be bespoke for me. Fascinating. That is a bit of a mantra for your life, actually. <laughs> it's very DIY. <laughs> uh, last one. How many fucks do you give? I'd love to say zero. I suspect there's a couple left, sadly, for me, and I'm, I'm working on those ones, but diminishing numbers of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. That was absolutely brilliant. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.